Hello, my name is Stanley Bill. You're listening to Notes from Poland. This week, I continue my brief history of Poland with part five on the tumultuous 17th century and the beginnings of the Commonwealth's decline. I'll discuss the Polish occupation of the Moscow Kremlin, Sarmatian culture, the great uprising in Ukraine, and conflict with the Ottoman Turks. Notesfrompoland.com is the leading English language source of news, insight, and analysis on Poland. In this podcast, I look at the country from all angles, politics, history, culture, and society. You can get more news and the deeper stories about Poland at notesfrompoland.com. In 1582, the elected King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, Stefan Batory, defeated the armies of Ivan the Terrible in a campaign for control of the Baltic region of today's Latvia and Estonia. The victory marked a key moment in an emerging regional rivalry between the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Tsardom of Russia. However, it also represented the continuation of a much older conflict between Lithuania and Moscow that dated back at least as far as the 14th century. Moscow had been only a minor town in the East Slavic Federation of Kievan Rus at the time of the catastrophic Mongol attacks of the 13th century. As the Lithuanians subsequently conquered vast swathes of the weakened Ruthenian lands, including Kiev itself, to form their hybrid Grand Duchy, Moscow began to grow in significance to the northeast, still under Mongol overlords, but outside the Lithuanian realm. In the mid-14th century, what had become the Grand Duchy of Moscow came into direct conflict with Lithuania, an energetic pagan state intent on further expansion into East Slavic lands. The Muscovites eventually pushed the invaders back, a reversal that formed one of the motivations on the Lithuanian side for the first union with Poland in 1385. For the next two centuries, there would be regular wars between Lithuania and Moscow for control of various northeastern territories, with the Lithuanians often relying on the assistance of their Polish partners. Moscow increasingly saw itself as the inheritor of the patrimony of Kievan Rus, with a historical mission to regather the shattered East Slavic lands. At the turn of the 15th and 16th centuries, this restoration project, though it was often against the will of local populations, began to gain momentum as Moscow steadily pushed into Lithuanian territory. The Lithuanians had some successes, but the general direction was inexorable as they lost hundreds of thousands of square kilometers of their former lands. This pressure from Moscow and the need for Polish support was perhaps the decisive factor pushing Lithuania reluctantly into deeper union with Poland in 1569. King Stefan Batory's defeat of Ivan the Terrible in 1582 would mark the beginning of a final period of regional ascendancy for the newly formed Commonwealth. After the death of Ivan's son Fyodor in 1598, the Rurik dynasty came to an end and Russia was plunged into a period of weakness and civil strife known as the Time of Troubles. The new Polish king, Zygmunt III Vasa, 
whose statue stands to this day on a column on Warsaw's Castle Square, carrying a cross and a sword, together with powerful members of the Schlachter, sought to take advantage of the chaos. The forces of the Commonwealth would invade the lands of the Tsar twice in the following decade. On the first occasion, Polish armies backed the so-called First False Dmitri, a pretender to the Russian throne claiming to be the son of Ivan the Terrible. His real background is unknown, but some accounts described him as the illegitimate child of Stefan Batory. With Polish support, Dmitri entered Moscow and was crowned as Tsar in 1605, while marrying a young Polish Catholic noblewoman. He was killed only a year later by incensed Russian boyars and a Moscow mob. His ashes were supposedly blasted out of a cannon in the direction of Poland. In 1607, a second false Dmitri appeared, claiming to be the first Dmitri, still alive, once again with the backing of a Polish army, which entered Russia. After a series of battles over two years, the Polish king, Zygmunt Wasa himself, decided to lead an invasion, with the ultimate intention of taking the Russian throne. According to some accounts, he dreamed of conquering Russia's vast territory for the Commonwealth and even of converting the Eastern Orthodox population to Catholicism. Such ambitions may have been cherished by the king and some members of the Schlachta, but in the long run they could only realistically hope to play the role of extras in an internal Russian conflict. In 1610, Polish-Lithuanian forces defeated a combined Russian-Swedish army of superior size at the Battle of Klusino on the road to Moscow. The battle saw the triumph of the famous Polish-winged hussars, heavily armoured elite cavalrymen who repeatedly charged the enemy, armed with long lances, swords, pistols and elaborate wings of bird feathers mounted on wooden frames on their backs or saddles. After the battle, the Poles entered Moscow, establishing a garrison in the Kremlin, while King Zygmunt's son, Władysław, was elected as Tsar by a faction of Russian boyars. He would never take the throne, as his devout Catholic father objected to the demand that he first convert to Russian Orthodoxy. The Polish king instead proposed that he himself become Tsar. In 1611, his army took the important city of Smolensk which the Muscovites had taken from Lithuania almost a century earlier. Now, the Poles and Lithuanians were pushing back the borders of Moscow's westward march. Eventually, in 1612, a Russian volunteer army organized by a merchant from Nizhny Novgorod named Kuzma Minin besieged the Polish garrison in the Kremlin, taking back Moscow and starving the Poles into eventual surrender. After occupying the city for almost two years, and by some reports having persecuted and robbed the local population, the desperate Polish forces were supposedly reduced to cannibalism by the end. Many were then killed after their capitulation. The war between the Commonwealth and Russia would continue until 1618, when a peace confirmed some of the Commonwealth's territorial gains, including the capture of Smolensk. For the Russians, the popular uprising that took back Moscow from the Poles and Lithuanians, throwing out these Western invaders and ending the civil unrest of the time of troubles, would become a transformative historical moment. The next year, Mikhail Romanov became Tsar, founding a new dynasty 
that would persist in various forms right up to the revolutions of 1917. Today, Russia celebrates National Unity Day on November 4, a czarist holiday re-established by Vladimir Putin in 2005 precisely to commemorate the expulsion of the Polish-Lithuanian invaders. The occupation of the Kremlin shows that the popular image of Poland as an eternal victim of Russian aggression is false. It may hold true in large parts of the last few centuries, but in earlier periods, the balance of power was often very different. When Russia was weak, Poland and Lithuania sought to exploit that weakness. Indeed, from the 13th and 14th centuries, Poland and especially Lithuania had pushed into the east, extending their power over the East Slavic lands of Kievan Rus. The two-year occupation of the Moscow Kremlin perhaps marks the chaotic high point of Polish-Lithuanian ambition and the beginning of a slow turning of the tide. King Zygmunt Vasa, whose long reign extended from 1587 to 1632, was the son of the King of Sweden and the youngest daughter of the Renaissance King of Poland, Zygmunt I the Old. Zygmunt Vasa is often remembered for relocating the Polish capital from Kraków to Warsaw in 1596. Despite its location in the still underdeveloped Mazovian region, Warsaw had the advantage of closer proximity to the Lithuanian capital of Vilnius, to the affluent western city of Poznań, and to Sweden, where Zygmunt also held the throne for a brief period. Despite growing up in a Protestant country, Zygmunt was a devout Catholic thanks to the early influence of his Polish mother. He is often associated with the Counter-Reformation, the Catholic response across Europe to the spread of Protestantism. In fact, the history of the Counter-Reformation in the Polish Kingdom preceded Zygmunt's reign. From the 1560s, many of the nobles who had previously converted to Lutheranism and Calvinism returned to the Catholic fold. In the Ukrainian lands, Protestantism became a stepping stone in the religious conversion of Eastern elites from Orthodoxy to Catholicism, often accompanied by cultural and linguistic Polonization. This transformation would put them both religiously and culturally at odds with the majority of the surrounding population, which remained Eastern Orthodox and linguistically East Slavic, speaking early forms of Ukrainian or Belarusian. The uncomfortable presence of this division in the Commonwealth gave birth to the religious and political idea of a union of the Orthodox Church with the Catholic Church under the authority of the Pope. The proposal was championed by the Catholic Jesuit order, then expanding its influence in the Commonwealth, but many Orthodox bishops were also attracted to it by the promise of greater political rights and influence, including membership of the Senate. In 1596, a union agreement was signed at Brest, today in Belarus, leading to the formation of the Ruthenian Uniate Church, which retained many of the former Orthodox traditions, including the right of priests to marry. Yet some of the Orthodox clergy and much of the Ruthenian populace rejected this union with Rome, thus creating a further schism in the East that would only exacerbate existing tensions. Orthodox Christians found themselves effectively turned into second-class citizens, with their church formally illegal between 1596 and 1632. More broadly, from the beginning of the 17th century, the much-vaunted tolerance of the Commonwealth was in steep decline. 
Catholic mobs destroyed Protestant churches in multiple incidents in various cities. Protestants were sometimes persecuted for offending the feelings of the Catholic majority. For example, in 1611, an Italian Calvinist named Franco de Franco was beaten and arrested in Lithuanian Vilnius for describing a Catholic procession as idolatry. He was then tortured and executed, and his church burnt to the ground. In 1638, the famous Raków school of the heretical Unitarian Polish Brethren was closed down by a court order. Two decades later, the Brethren were expelled from the country. From 1673, only Catholics could join the Schlachta. Jews faced a mixture of rising hostility and institutional determination to restrain it. For example, in 1618, anti-Jewish riots took place in Kraków, provoked by the publication of an anti-Semitic pamphlet by a professor of the Jagiellonian University. The tract accused Jews of all manner of religious and economic crimes, including the so-called blood libel, that is, of murdering Christian children to use their blood for ritual purposes. Eventually, King Zygmunt banned the pamphlet, exercising his royal prerogative to protect the Jewish communities from such slander. Yet a decade earlier, the king himself had expelled all Jews from the royal city of Bochnia, a centre of salt production near Kraków, after a Jewish man was accused of conspiring with a local Christian to desecrate a holy communion wafer. After trial and torture, the Christian was burnt at the stake on the main square, while the whole Jewish community was expelled as a collective punishment. Many such desecration trials took place across Europe at the time, and in fact they were probably less common in Poland and Lithuania than elsewhere. Overall, against the wider background of an intolerant age, the Commonwealth remained a relatively safe place for Jews, who enjoyed various legal protections and considerable autonomy under their own central council, often referred to as the Jewish same. Some Poles interpreted this security negatively, as in the polemical 17th century saying that the Commonwealth was heaven for the nobility, purgatory for townspeople, hell for peasants, and paradise for Jews. Accompanying the Counter-Reformation was the Baroque, a style of art, architecture, and literature embraced by the Catholic Church as a response to the austerity of Protestant aesthetics. Originating in Italy, the Baroque style involved grand and spectacular artistic effects, highly elaborate, often colourful ornamentation, and sharp contrasts between light and darkness. To this day, the style dominates the old centres of many Polish and Lithuanian towns, from countless churches, filled with ornate altars, gilded organs and evocative carvings of angels and cherubim, to secular buildings like the Vilanów Palace in Warsaw. A unique variant of the Baroque was also developed in Ukraine, where traditional Eastern Orthodox domes were combined with theatrical columned facades and other Western features. Some synagogues were even built in Baroque style. For example, the Isaac Synagogue in Kraków, built with the permission of King Władysław IV. The building survived the Second World War and still stands in Kraków's former Jewish district today. As in the case of the earlier Renaissance buildings, many of the Commonwealth's great Baroque edifices, including the Isaac Synagogue, were designed by Italian architects. Together with the Baroque came the peculiar cultural phase known as Sarmatianism, or Sarmatism, 
supposedly based on the Schlachter's belief that they were descendants of the ancient Iranian tribe of the Sarmatians. The term linked both Poland and Lithuania to antiquity, probably inspired by the maps of the 2nd century geographer Ptolemy, who marked the whole region as European Sarmatia. This quasi-historical notion almost seemed to include a colonial dimension, with the Sarmatian tribe supposedly having invaded the Slavic lands from the east to subjugate a local people they viewed as inferiors. The ruling class of the Schlachta would thus rule over Slavic peasants as an ethnically distinct group. In fact, some of these ideas may have been later reconstructions, and there is not very much evidence to suggest that 17th century nobles literally believed them. However, the Schlachter did develop a distinctive and hybridized Sarmatian cultural style, combining elements of both the East and the West. The Sarmatian stereotype casts the nobleman of the age as an impulsive warrior, attached to the unique freedoms of his class, extravagant in his tastes, confident in the superiority of his culture, sometimes xenophobic, devoutly Catholic, vain, and generous. Excessive displays of hospitality were a point of honor, hence the saying, meaning that one should pawn one's belongings if necessary, in order to put on a show of munificence for others. This archetypal style and personality, at least as they have been retrospectively constructed, are embodied in the figure of Jan Hrysostom Pasek, whose 17th century memoirs were rediscovered and first published in the 19th century. The memoirs describe Pasek's various adventures and misadventures, from military campaigns across Europe to his participation as a landowner in the Baltic grain trade to the tragic story of his beloved pet otter, which he is forced to give up to the king only for the animal to be killed by a royal guardsman. Pasek mourns the death of his otter while the hapless soldier is punished with the ordeal of running the gauntlet, later dying of his wounds. Pasek's memoirs offer fascinating insights into the life of his times, and the author himself is by turns charming, warm, cruel, boastful, and self-serving. The writing is typical of the Sarmatian Baroque, exemplifying a wordy style of storytelling known as Gavenda, which seems to imitate or even record an originally oral form of narration filled with anecdote and digression. The book also contains a characteristic element of the public rhetoric of the time, often described as macaronic language, that is, a Polish studded with expressions or even whole sentences in Latin. This pretentious form of high style, often littered with errors, was probably adapted from speech-making. The low level of the Latin reflected declining standards of noble education. Young members of the Schlachter no longer travelled to Italy to study, as they had done in Jan Kochanowski's time in the 16th century. Yet despite its provincialism, Sarmatianism was never insular, and it certainly did not represent any pure essence of authentic Polishness, as some modern nationalists would later depict it. The Sarmatian style was fundamentally hybrid, like all cultural forms, borrowing diverse aspects of very different cultures, in this case from both the West and the East. On the one hand, the Polish and Lithuanian nobles emphasized their links with Latin, with Republican Rome, and increasingly with the Roman Catholic Church. 
The royal court and some of the nobles were influenced by French fashions, and the reigning architectural and artistic models came from Italy. On the other hand, noble dress and hairstyles were often strikingly Eastern. The nobles wore long, flowing, colourful robes, the contouche and the jupan, a curved sword called a carabella, flat-soled long boots called bachmagi, plumed hats called kopaki, long moustaches and hair shaved at the sides. Many of these fashions, and the very words to describe them, came from Ottoman Turkey, testifying to the developing history of contact between the two states, which shared a border and fought multiple wars. These wars contributed to the developing self-image of the Commonwealth as the bulwark of Christianity, a powerful trope of national myth-making that would be adopted by multiple future generations, from Józef Piłsudski's army holding back the Bolshevik invaders in the early 1920s, to the contemporary Polish far-right, emphasizing their resistance to a supposed invasion of Muslim migrants. Yet the Commonwealth enjoyed extended periods of peace and diplomatic cooperation with Ottoman Turkey. Even in the 17th century, it fought more with Russia and Sweden than with the Turks. Moreover, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania in particular was home to communities of Muslim Tatars, the remains of which can be found today in the wooden mosques still dotting the countryside in a few villages in Belarus, Lithuania and eastern Poland. The largest proportion of the former territory of the Commonwealth lies in present-day Ukraine. By the 17th century, the term Ukraina, literally meaning borderland, was being used to describe the three large southeastern provinces of the Commonwealth, the Kiev, Bratslav and Chernihiv Palatinates. The Kiev region in particular was enormous, stretching across much of today's central and southern Ukraine down the Dnieper River towards the Black Sea. The region was mostly inhabited by the ancestors of modern-day Ukrainians, East Slavic Ruthenians adhering to Orthodox Christianity. The ruling nobility was of mixed Lithuanian and Ruthenian origin, but most eventually adopted Polish language and culture, along with Roman Catholicism after 1569. Other Polish Catholic nobles from central Poland, along with Jewish communities, also settled in the region, with Jews often performing intermediary roles as managers of schlachter estates and other assets, innkeepers and rent collectors. The far southern areas saw frequent raids from the Muslim Tatars of the neighbouring Crimean Khanate, which lay beyond a buffer region of the so-called Wild Fields, Pola in Polish, the endless grasslands of the western end of the Great Eurasian Steppe, partly inhabited by bands of Cossack warriors. The Tatar raiding parties penetrated as far west as the region of today's eastern Poland, around Przemysl, often seizing captives to be sold as slaves to the Ottoman Empire. One extraordinary story tells of a woman named Maria Dubnevichowa, taken in a raid from the settlement of Radrush between Przemysl and Zamosht. She was transported through Ukraine, Romania, Moldavia, Bulgaria and across the Black Sea to Istanbul where she was bought on the slave market by a high-ranking Ottoman official, who supposedly became very attached to her and treated her relatively well. Upon his death, she was freed, and managed to return to her former home in the Kingdom of Poland 27 years after her capture. She arrived to find that her husband had remarried, though his second wife had recently passed away. 
The Ukrainian lands represented all the diversity and tension of the multicultural Commonwealth, and it was here that it began to unravel. The Ukrainian region was a culturally distinct part of Poland-Lithuania, but without the separate legal identity enjoyed by the Grand Duchy and even by Royal Prussia. Especially after their annexation by Poland in 1569, the Ukrainian lands were increasingly subject to what some modern scholars describe as a kind of colonial domination. A brutal extraction economy developed on large agricultural estates where mostly Catholic lords exploited the Ruthenian Orthodox peasantry to feed the export of raw materials to Western markets. Other scholars argue that this oppression was no worse than in other parts of the Commonwealth and was largely at the hands of the great Ruthenian lords, most of whom had admittedly Polonized by the early 17th century. Perhaps the best-known example of such a Ruthenian magnate is Jeremy Vishnovetsky, who ruled over an enormous region, almost constituting a small state in its own right, including 50 settlements, 230,000 inhabitants, and a private army of 12,000 soldiers. Born into one of the great Orthodox Ruthenian princely families, with its roots in the medieval Kievan Rus, Vishnovetsky converted to Catholicism becoming a resolute executor of Polish authority and even the father of a future king of Poland. While such Polonized magnates wielded most of the power in Ukraine, large numbers of Polish Catholic Szlachta from the westerly parts of the kingdom also began to migrate into the region to occupy the less populated areas, slowly colonizing the steppe country. The Commonwealth never extended quite as far as the Black Sea, and indeed the very idea of a border in the wild fields was a purely theoretical concept. Instead, the Commonwealth's power and influence gradually tapered off over a vast frontier region, a kind of European Wild West, especially beyond the impassable rapids of the central Dnieper River. Protecting this borderland from Tatar slave raids and Ottoman attacks was difficult, and so the Commonwealth began to use the services of the Cossacks. These warrior bands, whose name derives from a word of Turkic origin, meaning free man or vagabond, were mostly East Slavic Orthodox Christians, some of whom had fled servitude in settled agricultural regions to live lives of self-governed freedom in the wild lands. Many lived beyond the Dnieper Rapids, in island strongholds, mostly swallowed up today by a southern Ukrainian reservoir which was created by a Soviet hydroelectric scheme in the 1950s. The Cossacks survived on hunting, fishing, and raids of their own, sometimes even into Ottoman territory. On one occasion, a fleet of Cossack boats, led by their hetman Petro Konashevich Sahaidachny, even went as far as Istanbul, pillaging and setting fire to its suburbs. Konashevich Sahaidachny and his Cossacks would later play an important role in a famous Polish-Lithuanian victory over the Turks at the Battle of Hotin in southern Ukraine in 1621. From the late 16th century, up to several thousand Cossacks, mostly from landowning groups, were formally registered by the Commonwealth authorities, entitling them to pay and privileges in exchange for their role in border defence. This system engendered constant tensions, as the Cossacks came into conflict with the local Schlachta over jurisdiction and rights, and over how many Cossacks should be registered. 
there were multiple Cossack uprisings in which unregistered Cossack bands, sometimes joined by runaway Ruthenian peasants, rampaged across the countryside, killing Polish nobles. Retribution was just as fierce. One captured Cossack rebel leader, Severin Nalivaiko, today celebrated as a Ukrainian hero, was tortured, then hung, drawn and quartered in public in Warsaw. Legends even said that a white-hot iron crown was forced over his head. In short, Ukraine was a tinderbox, where diverse political, social, ethnic and religious grievances were held by Cossacks, Orthodox clergy and the majority Orthodox peasantry. In 1648, the greatest uprising of them all broke out, led by a Cossack named Bogdan Khmelnytsky. The revolt soon expanded to the Ruthenian peasantry, who rose up against what they seemed to have viewed as a combination of religious, economic, and perhaps ethnic-based oppression by both Catholic Poles and Jews. The Cossacks formed an alliance with the Tatars of the Crimean Khanate, who saw an opportunity for plunder and to weaken their neighbours. Polish Catholic nobles, clergy and Jews were massacred in large numbers, provoking bloody reprisals against the Orthodox peasantry. The violence was brutal. In 1652, after the Battle of Batich, the Cossacks killed up to 5,000 Polish prisoners, many of them noblemen, in cold blood. The bound prisoners were beheaded or disemboweled, watching others die before them as they waited their turn. Jews suffered some of the worst violence, with whole communities wiped out by Cossacks and local Ruthenian peasants, who often hated them both as the instruments of Polish lordly oppression and as religious others. The Ruthenian peasants also suffered, sometimes at the hands of the Cossacks, but mainly from Polish retribution led by the magnate Jeremy Wisniewiecki, whose men burnt down villages across the countryside. Thousands of peasants were also captured and sold into slavery by the Cossacks' Tatar allies. Khmelnytsky succeeded in establishing an independent entity known as the Cossack Hetmanate, celebrated in Ukraine today as an early version of a Ukrainian state. He entered Kiev in triumph in 1648, where he was greeted by Orthodox religious leaders as a new Moses, who had delivered the Ruthenian nation from Polish captivity. Yet the Cossack alliance with the Crimean Tatars soon began to disintegrate, and the forces of the Commonwealth pressed back. The Cossacks needed new allies. The answer was a fateful alliance with Moscow, formalized near Kiev in 1654. Cossack and Russian armies were soon attacking the Poles and Lithuanians across a wide front from Lviv to Vilnius. In 1655, Protestant Sweden invaded the Commonwealth from the north, its armies sweeping down in a deluge of destruction and looting that devastated much of the country. Warsaw, Kraków and Poznań were all occupied. The invasion also saw the Lithuanian magnate Janusz Radziwiłł renounce the Polish-Lithuanian Union, siding with the Swedish king and signing, along with a number of other Lithuanian lords, a short-lived union with Sweden. Again, the forces of the Commonwealth rallied, and the Swedish flood was eventually stopped, with the siege of the Pauline Monastery at Częstochowa marking a pivotal moment. The Polish victory there was declared a miracle worked by the monastery's Black Madonna icon, a sacred image that remains an object of pilgrimage today. In thanks, 
King Jan Kazimierz declared the Virgin Mary the Queen of Poland and devoted the whole Commonwealth to her protection. The war in Ukraine ended with a truce in 1667 that transferred the Cossack Hetmanate, formerly the Commonwealth's eastern Ukrainian territories, to Russia. Meanwhile, Cossack independence in cooperation with the Tsar turned out to be a mirage, as Ukrainians entered a long period of subjugation by Moscow. The civil war in Ukraine is also haunted by a great missed opportunity. The Treaty of Hadyach, signed between the Commonwealth and the Cossack leadership in 1658, after Khmelnytsky's death, but never realized in practice. The treaty effectively created a Commonwealth of the three nations, bringing into existence a Grand Duchy of Ruthenia as an equal partner in union with Poland and Lithuania. The Ukrainian lands would have their own administration and army, Cossacks would join the body of the Shlachta with all the attendant rights, and the Orthodox Church would have a privileged status in the Kiev province. This new federated commonwealth of equal Poles, Lithuanians and Ruthenians might have changed the history of Central and Eastern Europe, but it was not to be. Instead, the Commonwealth emerged from the catastrophic middle period of the 17th century severely weakened. It had lost the large territory of left-bank Ukraine, including the major cities of Kiev and Smolensk. Warsaw and various other cities lay in ruins after the Swedish deluge. By some estimates, up to 40% of the population of the Commonwealth had been lost to violence or disease, while many cultural treasures had been plundered or destroyed. The tide of history had decisively turned, and the Commonwealth would never recover its former power and position in Europe. By contrast, Russia, which had begun the 17th century in chaos, was rising. Yet one last moment of triumph for the Commonwealth would enter collective memory towards the end of this tumultuous period, the Battle of Vienna of 1683, where Polish-Lithuanian forces together with the Habsburg army, both under the command of the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, crushed the Ottoman Turks, breaking their two-month siege of the city. The battle has been heavily mythologized, with the decisive charge of the Polish-winged Tsars presented as an epic defense of Christian Europe from Muslim invasion, Poland as the bulwark of Christendom. Indeed, the battle probably was the key moment in the final halting of the Ottoman advance into Central Europe. But the Commonwealth also had Muslims on its own side at Vienna, with a division of Lipka Tatars whose ancestors had settled in Lithuania centuries earlier, now fighting alongside the Polish Christian cavalry against the Turks. King Jan Sobieski was partly motivated by the desire to recover the Commonwealth's remaining Ukrainian lands, which the Ottomans had taken in the 1670s. Eventually, these lands were returned after Sobieski's death, but the eastern part of Ukraine would never again be attached to Poland. The middle of the 17th century was a key turning point in Polish history, giving rise to a host of retrospective questions. Above all, were the Commonwealth's diversity and noble freedoms ultimately sources of weakness? Was the large East Slavic Orthodox population a ticking time bomb that exploded in the Khmelnytsky uprising? Or was the ensuing civil war the result of specific choices? 
the pressure exerted on the Orthodox Church, the isolation of Catholic lords in the East from an oppressed Ruthenian peasantry, and the failure to enfranchise the Cossacks and to recognize the distinct status of Ukraine. In other words, did a declining culture of toleration in the wake of the Counter-Reformation lead to an entirely avoidable mismanagement of the Commonwealth's internal diversity? Many historians have also asked whether the nobles' golden freedom and the associated difficulty of raising taxes to fund an army left the Commonwealth at a significant disadvantage in a war-torn century. Was its consensual political system fit for purpose in an era of rising absolutist states, especially in a region subject to the fateful geography of few natural barriers to the East and West? These questions can only have speculative answers. There is no way of knowing whether a different path of development, be it federalized devolution or greater centralization, could have reversed the decline of the Commonwealth. But by the end of the 17th century, at least as far as later interpreters have read it, the writing was on the wall. In the next episode of A Brief History of Poland, I'll look at the Commonwealth's final phase and its last-ditch attempts to reform itself in the brief spring of the Polish Enlightenment. I'm Stanley Bill. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.